0: Celebrate Christmas. Oh, all month long. Big dinner with lots of presents. 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 Go to church. I go into church and be with my friends and family. We read the story from Luke done a christmas tree and decorate it and we like to be with family and eat lots of good food lots of food mashed potatoes turkey homemade tomatoes brisket we still like the, the gifts and stuff like that for the children we open presents on christmas day and then the next day we leave to go to grandma's house with family and friends and uh, christmas eve service at church the perfect gift, the best gift. Anything that involves Star Wars. Just good health and fun times. See the tickets to the New York Yankees. Anything from the heart. My kids. Kids for Christmas. Having kids or getting to see them? No, just getting to be with them. I don't need no more. I want you to get a Game Boy. Concert tickets. Money. Money. Lots of money. A body. A four-wheeler. A boat. A new truck. A brand new Mercedes. Some new motorcycle accessory. World peace. Just for the family to be together and everybody be happy. My mom and dad getting back together. My dad to get out of jail and quit drinking. So, why do we celebrate Christmas? Mom. Probably it's about the day Jesus was born. As you get to celebrate with your family, I see everybody. Merry Christmas, Jesus' mother. It's actually Christ's birthday is what it is. The three kings came out to the stables to see him. Uh, actually, I was born and raised Jehovah's Witness, so I never got to celebrate Christmas. I think it's time to really look at what you've gotten over the year and what you can give for the next year. And it is an age-old tradition, so I mean, we like to uphold that tradition. All right, well, that's a humorous look at uh, some people's understanding of Christmas. But at the same time, it's kind of thought-provoking to hear some of the answers. One wants a Mercedes Benz, and the other wants his father home from prison. One wants a ticket to a ball game, and another wants time with his kids. One young man wants a Game Boy. Another wants his parents back together. And, you know, as you listen to these different answers, when it comes down to it, it's apparent that some are hoping that Santa Claus comes through and others are needing God to come through. There are some things that only God can do. And Christmas is our reminder that this is true for all of us, that we all are in need of God's rescue. And one of the many things that I think is so wonderful about the Christmas story is that God puts his rescue plan in action not through well-known places, through powerful people. He brought about his plan in surprising ways in some of the most unexpected places through some of the least likely people. And what that means for us is that amazing God stories can occur in obscure places like Penfield and Bellevue and Baseline, through unlikely people like you and like me. And uh, we're in the second week of this message series, Songs for Christmas, and this week we're focusing on the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, that we're going to sing at the end of the service, and at the same time, um, the passage of scripture that tells the story of Mary and Joseph making that trip to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was a pretty uh, seemingly insignificant little village, which turned out to be of great significance in history. Bethlehem is a place where the story of Ruth unfolds. It's where King David was born. But most importantly, it is the spot where Jesus, uh, God decided that his son would be born. He chose this sparsely populated, I think it's... uh, Population was around 200 or something, a uh, little spot on the map to be the birthplace of a king, and the carol, oh little town of Bethlehem, was written by Philip Brooks, and he was considered to be one of the premier preachers of his day. He was had a doctorate of divinity from the University of Oxford. He taught at Yale University. He was very public advocate for. Um, Against slavery during the Civil War. But even with all of that, his name would have just been a name in the history books if it had not been for the little song that he wrote for a Christmas play, uh, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. In 1865, just nine months after uh, Lincoln was assassinated, with images of the war and the thought of that assassination on his mind, he made a trip to uh Israel. And on Christmas Eve he made a horse a trip on by horseback from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And he uh went there and participated in a 5-hour long Christmas Eve service. So, you know, ours are <laughs> significantly shorter than that at the Church of the Nativity. And Brooks was deeply moved by that service and seeing the serenity of the shepherds as he rode through the fields back to Jerusalem uh, that night and observed these shepherds under the stars watching their sheep. And he later commented, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem close to the spot where Jesus was born when the whole church was singing hour after hour splendid hymns of praise to God. It seemed as if I could hear voices telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. And he, uh, that experience stuck with him. And three years later, when he uh, was trying to come up with some words for a song for their children's program, that experience came back to mind, and he penned the words to this song. Then he gave the words to the church organist who, uh, to write a little tune to go with it. He was less than enthusiastic about it. Uh, he, he said he wasn't inspired at all by the words, so he kind of put it off. And then the night before the program, God woke him up in the night with, with the tune running around in his heart and his mind. He got up and he jotted it down and then came the next day with this song. And that very day, uh, six teachers and 36 children sang this little song for the first time. I I was pretty impressed with the patience of the (laughs) teachers that they would uh, accept a song on the day of the Christmas program, but uh, I don't think I would get away with that, probably. But uh, this song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, was inspired by a trip to Bethlehem and by the story that took place some 2,000 years ago. That story is the centerpiece of the Christmas season. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn uh, there, we're going to look at a portion of that story from the Gospel of Luke. It'll also be on the screen. Uh, Matthew and Luke are the only two Gospels that mention uh, Jesus' birth. And Luke is the only one that tells the story of what happened when they got to Bethlehem. So we're reading from Luke uh, chapter 2, starting... In verse one. It says In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that was that took place while Curanius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David Now, so I was studying that uh, scripture again and thinking about how many times I've preached it and began to wonder how many times over the last 2,000 years has it been read and retold either in Christmas, children's Christmas programs or in sermons or uh, Christmas Eve ser- services or Hollywood productions in homes around Christmas trees by candlelight at Christmas Eve services in foxholes and during wars. It's a it's a beautiful story that invites us into this story, and and as I said earlier, one of the wonderful things about the way the birth of Jesus took place is that it highlights an important truth about God. Um, God seems to favor using the unexpected and the unsign- insignificant, uh, the least likely for His purposes, and we see this all the way through the Bible. God chose to. Uh, aging seniors named Abraham and Sarah uh, to bless the world and create a nation. He used a boy named Joseph, uh, who had been sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, to rescue uh, that same family and keep them from starvation. God used Moses, a self labeled stutterer, uh, to speak to Pharaoh and deliver God's people from bondage. He made a shepherd boy named David into the greatest king. For Israel, he used two teens or a teen and a twenty-something to be parents for his son, and he chose a little burg and a stable as the birthplace of a king. God seems to delight in using the unexpected, unknowns, least likely to accomplish His purposes. And, and since this is God's plan for plan, how can we be more aware of God's invitations to join Him in His work? Um, in our lives, in our church, in our family, our community, in our world. What does God's uh, preference for the unexpected and least likely mean for us? That's what we're going to look at if you want to pull out your message notes. And the first thing that it means is that when God invites you to join him in his work, your willingness to serve him is more important than your resume. Your willingness is more important than your resume. Mary was just a young peasant girl, no more than fifteen or sixteen years old when God invites her into this amazing assignment and Mary could have said, uh, "You've got the wrong girl uh I've never taken any parenting classes we don't even they don't even offer childhood development until my senior year. You know these kinds of things. instead, she said yes." Let it be done just as you said, I am the Lord's servant. Your willingness is a greater indicator of your usefulness to God than your training, your resume, your title, your degree. Now, there are a lot of people with degrees and training, gifted people who are sitting on the sideline because they lack the most important thing, and that is willingness. God is looking for willing servants, not long resumes. In First Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes about this principle. He says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things And the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Since uh, God's preference is to choose the least likely and move in unexpected ways, we all need to be aware that God may be waiting for our yes to his invitation, even when we don't feel qualified. Then the second thing uh, that we learn from this story is that when you need God's provision or help, it will likely come from an unlikely place or in an unexpected way. You know, we sometimes put God in a box as far as you know how how He's going to answer us. But if you think about it, um, think about this: if if God caused Caesar, who who was in no way a worshipper of God, he thought he was God to call for a census to fulfill his purposes in Mary and Joseph's life and for the world, Uh, he needed to get them to Bethlehem, then we need to be very aware of the possibility that God is at work through people around us and in situations and circumstances that we are not expecting God to use on our behalf. And sometimes we think God's forgotten us and he's not going to come through and Certainly, you know, Mary must have wondered when she got to Bethlehem and there was no room in the inn, no hot bath waiting, nothing like that. Where's God in the midst of all this? God's provision always comes in the way, doesn't always come in the way that we think it will. But when you're seeking his help, uh, God uh, will come through for you. He'll help you. And often those provisions are in unexpected ways. Uh, have you ever needed encouragement? You're just feeling down and somebody that you haven't talked to in a very long time calls you or you get a card in the mail or you're you're reading the scriptures and there's this some obscure scripture that you never really even noticed before and all of a sudden God brings that to your attention and it speaks exactly to the need that you have in your life that day. God is always at work in our situations. And, you know, I've experienced God's unexpected provision in many ways throughout the years, but one that stands out that I thought of as I was writing this was um, when we were, when I was pastoring at Comstock, our church made this decision to move out of our facility because it was uh, landlocked, there was hardly any parking, there was no handicapped bathrooms, and it would be practically impossible and very expensive to to make it accessible uh, for people, so... Uh, we we decided to move out, and the week after we took that step of faith, and uh, in the next couple of weeks after we took that step of faith and signed the rental agreement for this banquet facility, I was going to be $350 a week added to the budget. And you know, this is a small church of average attendance of 68. And uh, in the next couple of weeks, God brought two new families into the church, and they were both tithers. And their tithe came out to exactly three hundred and fifty dollars a week. It was amazing uh, what God had done through that, and so unexpected. None of us, when we signed the lease for that facility, were thinking, "Oh, God's probably going to send the vice president of Eaton Corporation to our <laughs> our church, little church in Comstock, and that, that he and his wife would settle." down there and, and want to attend a church with an average attendance of 68. But God can do unusual unexpected things and he works in those kinds of ways. Then the third lesson from God's choice of uh, Mary, Joseph, Bethlehem and uh, is when God uses the least likely, he's most likely to get the glory. When we allow God to use us, even if we're the least likely, God's most likely, to get the glory. When we allow God to use us, even if you don't feel adequate for the task, those are the times in your life when you're most likely to point others to Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite scriptures is from Second Corinthians 4-7. It says, but we have this treasure, the, the Holy Spirit, in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Have you ever had that when you just you did something and you knew it was God, that God enabled you to do it, that the power came from him? God has a purpose in using the least likely and unexpected. His strength is made most visible in people who aren't trying to get the glory for themselves but humbly offer what they have for God's purposes and his goodness and power then shines through and his name is made known. And you know, God weaves all the unexpected, unlikely parts of our story together in a way that glorifies him and shows how sovereign and purposeful he is in all that he does. And Bethlehem is a great example of this. Um, For such a small place, Bethlehem, holds a mountain of meaning. And we're going to kind of get into some of the Hebrew here uh, uh, to look at this, but it's pretty uh, interesting. The Hebrew word for Bethlehem has two parts to it. There's Beth and Laham, And the the first part is Beth. And in the Hebrew, uh, the word Beth means house. And it's one of those kind of uh, words, it, it means enclosure or place of protection. One of the places that we see it, used is Jacob when he's running from Esau. He lays down and he sleeps with his head on a rock all night. I don't know how. But during the night he has this vision of angels ascending and descending and at the top of the staircase is the Lord himself. So when he wakes up, he said, this must be the house of God. And, and so he names the place Bethel, Beth-el, the house of God. All right. So the first part of the word is, is, uh, means house then the second part of Bethlehem can actually have two very different meanings. The second part of the word of Bethlehem is the word lahem. And one way that the second part can be translated is to do battle or fight. And and it's not the most common way that it's uh, translated, but there are several occurrences in the Old Testament where it's translated that way. And then the second translation... um, the second way it can be translated is bread or food. And this bread is not just, you know, like a side to order on your plate. It's the bread that Jesus was talking about when he said, I am the bread of life, uh, when he said, told us to pray, give us today this daily bread. So, so two very different meanings, uh, to fight, uh, to battle, and Bread something to eat. But when we put this all together, something significant emerges as we see what God has woven into the name of the place where Jesus was born. Jesus, the bread of life, was born in a place called the house of bread. The one who did battle with death death itself and one who was raised to victory after three days in the grave was born in a place called the house of battle. God chose seeming, this seemingly insignificant place, Bethlehem. And on that holy night, while shepherds watched their sheep at night and angels sang choruses announcing his birth, God gave us both the bread of life and the one who would defeat death. And on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he lifted up symbols of the bakery and the battleground the blood and the bread. And this table is our reminder that God is able to use the most unexpected circumstances and places to fulfill his purposes. Would you pray with me? Our loving Jesus, we uh, thank you. And as we come to this table today, reminded that you are the bread of life, You've given our your blood for us, your life for us. We give you thanks. We thank you for Christmas, the celebration of your birth, and in this meal, the reminder of your death, all of it for us. You gave everything. You gave up heaven to come and be with us. You gave up your life so that we could have life with you. And we thank you and praise you for all these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name.